Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with Jacob and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. May God bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word to open our hearts to its truth. Please remove us from apathy, cynicism, callousness or rebellion, so that we may really hunger for this bread of life that feeds our souls, nourishes our hearts for your work, and fills us with the joy that is our strength. And we ask this for the honor and glory of your dear Son and our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. In 1880, a woman, well, a young girl, by the name of Helen Keller was born. When she was 19 months old, she had a disease. They weren't exactly sure whether it was scarlet fever or meningitis. Uh, What it was doesn't matter, but what it did is what matters. Because Helen Keller was then deaf and blind. It seemed uh, that it would be impossible to to communicate with this young girl. Uh, there was one servant who kind of figured out some of the hand motions uh, that Helen would make uh, from time to time and be able to give her the things that she needed. But eventually her family decided to hire someone to come in to be a nanny and try and communicate with her. And so they hired Ann Sullivan. She came in and she started to have Helen touch things with one hand and she would begin to spell them out in the other palm. It was almost like the heavens opened, Helen notes, when she finally connected the two things and began to communicate back to Anne by writing in her palm. She uh, went on to not just function as a person and a family, but actually became educated, learned how to speak, and actually became a lecturer in places. Her relationship with uh, Ann Sullivan continued uh, through the course of Ann's life. For almost 50 years, they were near constant companions. Helen wrote an autobiography that explains a lot of this experience, and that autobiography was turned into a play by the name of The Miracle Worker. And some of you, like myself, probably read that, play while you were in high school or middle school. The miracle worker. 
That was what she thought of in terms of Aunt Sullivan. Jesus, uh, last week we saw that he has cast out this unclean spirit from a man. That word of his reputation is beginning to spread throughout Capernaum, and it will eventually spread throughout uh, most of um, most of Galilee. Okay, how is Jesus going to respond to this? Was was this event, the casting out of the demon, something of a fluke, or was it something that Jesus was able to do whenever he wanted to or needed to? What were we to think of this, and what more particularly was the church in Rome to think of it as they received uh, the gospel of Mark? So how will Jesus respond to his growing reputation and the growing crowds? We see a hint of this. Jesus leaves the synagogue where he has done this miracle, and Jesus enters the house of Simon and Andrew. And uh, we tend to think of houses uh, like ours, and their houses were very different. And we see sort of a a view of a typical house from that period of time where you see uh, entrance into a courtyard, and off that courtyard there are a number of rooms. Some of those are common rooms, uh, but we do see the stable, okay, as well as uh, living space up on the roof. See, you've got some guys hanging out up there. Uh, so a family would not be what we consider to be a nuclear family, but there would often be multi-generations uh, within that. And we see immediately from the text that this is the house not just of Simon, but also of Andrew. Okay? So the brothers live there. But let's not think that this was a bachelor pad, okay? Because Simon had a wife. Now, we don't know about Andrew. He may or may not have had a wife. Uh, Simon Peter's wife shows up in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 when Paul makes reference to her uh, in terms of one of the rights of the apostles. Uh, Don't I have the right to bring a wife with me just like these men do? And so we see uh, that uh, Simon didn't leave his wife when he followed Jesus, but still remained married. Not sure what his wife thought about this initially, anyway. Mark doesn't tell us, and neither do any of the other gospel writers, about his, her response to his, his uh, change in vocations from fisherman to a fisher of men. But nonetheless, what Mark lets us know is that Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Now, it's still the Sabbath. They've just left the synagogue, and they've entered into this house, so it was not that far of a journey. Okay, It was within the bounds of the Sabbath day journey that the Jews honored. And this woman is ill. She has a fever. Fevers were often seen as something in and of themselves, not necessarily a symptom of a greater problem. So they weren't sure what to do with his mother-in-law, who has been laying up sick. It's not life-threatening, so this would be sort of an act of mercy that would not be appropriate on the Sabbath, and we're not going to get too far into that. Don't worry, that controversy is coming up in the Gospel of Mark, but this is sort of like a hint of what is going to come. Would this miracle worker, would this man who was able to cast out the unclean spirit in the synagogue, would he be able to do this miracle of dealing with the fever in Simon's mother-in-law? Okay, He's not in the synagogue, he's in a house. 
Okay, so does the, the change of geography matter in what happens here? Does the change in publicity and visibility change what's going to happen here? And we see that Jesus took her by the hand, lifted, lifts her up, and the fever leaves. The only people who witness this are the people who are in the house. And we're not sure how many there were. But what happens next is significant, is that uh, then the sun goes down. We're going to skip over and get back, don't worry. But I want us to recognize that, that the sun goes down, the Sabbath is over, okay? They celebrate it from sundown to sundown, okay? And now the house becomes mobbed by people with various diseases and demons, the word has spread from the synagogue while Jesus has been in the house of Simon. And now all of these people are apparently showing up out of the woodwork. It's, it's a, he uses a little bit of hyperbole in the idea that the whole city shows up. It's not like every single person showed up, but a large number of people did show up. And what it says, what Mark tells us is that he healed many who were sick, and cast out many demons. I think it's important for us to note the differences between these two things. One, we see that illnesses are distinct from demonic oppression. They're two separate things. They're not the same, in other words. What I'm getting at is that illness is not caused by demonic oppression. Mark is making a distinction between these two things. And the resolution of these two things is also different because the diseases were healed and the demons were cast out. So Jesus was not healing the illnesses of the people by casting out demons. But Jesus recognized the difference and communicated that difference to his disciples for their future ministry. The illnesses needed to be healed, and they were. The demons needed to be cast out, and they were. Let's go back to Ann Sullivan for a moment. From our perspective, it sounds like a miracle that uh, this blind and deaf young girl is now able to communicate and from that is able to actually become educated and have a life in which she is a wanted speaker at universities. But it wasn't a miracle. It wasn't as though Ann Sullivan had made her eyes to see and her ears to hear. But what we see here is that Jesus did just that thing. Jesus didn't simply assist a girl who was in very difficult circumstances, uh, Jesus actually comes and heals these people who were brought to him. Jesus actually frees those who were oppressed by demons. And so Jesus is not just uh, metaphorically a miracle worker. Jesus actually is a miracle worker. Jesus has power and authority in both the natural or physical realm as well as spiritually. 
His authority was over the body of people as well as the demonic spirits who were oppressing some people. Power speaks to the ability that Jesus has to heal disease, the ability Jesus has to cast out demons. Authority speaks to the right Jesus has to do both of these things. And so he has both power or control as well as authority, right? Power that is exercised without the authority to do so is what we often call oppression. Or perhaps bullying, right? I mean, most of us have gone to grade school and maybe remember that there's always a bully, someone who has power over us, but not authority over us, and yet tells us what to do He doesn't have any right to tell us what to do, but he uses brute force in order to make us do this. Jesus doesn't simply have the power to do these things. He also has the authority or the right to do these things. He's not just more powerful than the demons. He has authority over the demons as well as the diseases. Authority without power or ability is something that is empty. It's the exact opposite problem. And you almost have uh, this this picture. And what comes to my mind, because I forgot to go and think about this more difficultly, you know, more hardly, but the the rather um, profane movie Animal House, I remember seeing it when I was a teenager. And there's a scene at the end where there are basically there's a riot out there, and the the police officer has authority, so to speak. He's telling everyone all will be calm, all will be well, but no one is listening to him. There is a limit to his his power to to affect his authority, and so he sits um, basically useless until he's run over. And so authority without a power to control things gets run over. But we see that Jesus exercises power and authority over demons and diseases. Second question that kind of arises from that answer to the first question is, why did Jesus heal diseases and why did he cast out demons? And I think we need to go back to the origin of these problems. Uh, that disease and oppression have their roots ultimately in Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. It all traces back to that. See? But it doesn't kind of stop there. We see in places like Deuteronomy 28 that disease and oppression of various sorts, not simply demonic oppression, were also covenant curses that were intended to prompt the repentance of Israel. So we have things like uh, what we see in verse 22. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and mildew. So the first part of those were physical ailments that they would experience because they have abandoned the Lord their God. We see again in verse 28, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at midday as the blind grope in darkness, and you will not prosper 
in your ways. And so we see, on the one hand, it's a, it's a function of the curse that has been brought because of Adam's disobedience, but we also see that the, it's part of what God uses to promote repentance in his people when they've gone astray. As we think of Israel in the days of Jesus, uh, these are people who have gone astray. Uh, They're experiencing the misery of their sin, and many of them had begun to cry out that God would answer their sin in misery. We see that when God's people cry out, God responds in compassion. We see this at the beginning of Exodus. Exodus 3, for instance, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And in that case, God is going to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians through Moses. But we see the similar pattern repeated in the book of Judges. There's apostasy. They get beat up and experience the curses of the covenant. They cry out to God, and he delivers out of his compassion. So, yeah, A, B, C, D. There you go. Apostasy, beat up, cry out, deliverance. Okay, that's the pattern of most of the book of Judges. And that's intended to be a pattern that we experience, generally speaking. And so we can assume uh, that some of the people in Israel have been crying out, and now God has heard, and God has come, and He's not just sent someone like Moses, but God Himself arrives in Jesus. That He is the ultimate answer to the cries of His people who are experiencing misery produced by sin. And so we see that Jesus here is expressing compassion for suffering people. And he's doing it in a way that demonstrates the power of his kingdom. He has been proclaiming the kingdom. He's been talking about the kingdom. And now it shifts and he is exercising and demonstrating the power of the kingdom. Not simply proclaiming that the kingdom is coming, if you can understand that distinction. In Caesar's kingdom, there was very little care about those who were suffering. I don't think Nero, who was the Caesar at the time that this was written, would you know, lay awake at night going, oh, so many of my people are sick. Oh, so many of my people are suffering. He was thinking, when is the next party? Who can I blame for the troubles that I inflict upon the Roman Empire? That's what he's thinking. He's not thinking about how I can move in compassion and care for the people that have been entrusted to me. But that is precisely how Jesus thinks. How can I be kind to the people in my care? Jesus didn't hide from all of these people. If the whole city were at the door of my house, I would probably want to hide. Jesus doesn't. He leaves Simon's home, 
and meets the people there in their suffering and misery, identifies what's wrong with each person, and works to restore them to wholeness. Now, here's what I want us to catch for a second. As it says in John's Gospel, Jesus knows what's in the heart of men. So Jesus knows that many of these people are coming for a miracle worker. They've heard that Jesus has power. They're not coming for a Savior. They're not coming to be delivered from their sinfulness and their sin. Many of them are coming just to be healed or delivered from demonic oppression. And Jesus does it anyway. That's what I want us to catch. That Jesus is not sort of giving them a a test to see who qualifies to be healed that day. He's not giving them a test to see whom he should heal, who, who, who meets the standards for him to exercise his power and to remove the demonic oppression. We see instead this incredible indiscriminate mercy, which, if you're a Calvinist, sometimes troubles you. It shouldn't, but might. This indiscriminate mercy that Jesus showers, it's reflective of what we see in Psalm 145. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. And so He heals. And so He delivers. So He expresses compassion even towards those who will want nothing to do with Him with regard to their sin. But what about us? What we ought to hear here in this place, in this text, is that that we are welcome to bring our struggles, to bring our diseases, to bring our despair to this Jesus who will find, uh, give us help for us body and soul. We see that Jesus does not despise weakness in people. Jesus does not despise frailty in people. Jesus does not despise the brokenness of His people. Caesar did despise them because that meant you were useless to him. You could not be a soldier to expand his empire or protect it. You were not useful to Caesar if you were frail and broken, but Jesus says to to us, your brokenness doesn't scare me away, but I have come to bring you wholeness, to bring you restoration, to bring you fullness in a way that no earthly government can ever imagine doing. And so we see that Jesus' ministry was holistic, that Jesus ministered to the body and the soul, 
And that there are moments when he's just ministering to the body. Now remember, he's not, as from, from what we can see in the text, he is not proclaiming the kingdom right now, but he's demonstrating the power of the kingdom as he deals with these bodies and souls. And sometimes our ministry will be geared towards the body, the material needs, to a greater degree than other moments, when it's focused mostly on the, the, the spiritual. Okay? We should not be rebuking Jesus for healing people and not proclaiming the gospel at that moment. And neither should we be rebuking people who, at a given moment, are caring for the body so that later they may care for the soul. Do you understand? For instance, years ago, the fourth ward of Houston was largely a black ghetto. And as you might imagine, they weren't excited about white people coming in and talking about Jesus. They wanted more than words. They wanted something tangible. And so there was a doctor by the name of Eckerd who decided that he would set up a clinic. And at first, there were only a few people who came, but soon word got out, and soon he was seeing uh, hundreds of people a day, and the clinic was expanding. And because he cared for the physical needs of the people a demonstration of the kingdom, he was able to proclaim the kingdom to people who before didn't want to listen. So these things are intended to go hand in hand, even though at one point, at any given point, you're stressing one over the other. And so Jesus' ministry was holistic. We see that Jesus is present in compassion for suffering people. And sometimes you're the suffering person who needs compassion, and sometimes you're the person who offers the compassion in the name of Jesus. Let's step back a little farther, so to speak. How are we to understand these miracles that Jesus performed? Remember, Jesus is responding to the cries of people that, that would be expressed in their prayers. And on most weeks, we didn't this week because we uh, prayed for the graduates, uh, but most weeks we pray, Thy kingdom come. The miracles that Jesus performs are demonstrating the coming kingdom. They're giving people a sneak peek, a preview, a, a, a trailer, so to speak, of what is going to happen when the kingdom comes in its fullness when Jesus returns. Okay. We see in Romans 8, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so in that larger context of Romans 8, he's talking about the afflictions that we still experience. And so coming to Jesus doesn't mean that your life is all suddenly perfect. You come to Jesus and you still have problems, but we recognize that we groan now... But when Jesus returns, we will receive the redemption of our bodies and we will groan no more. 
And so this is, in a sense, an intrusion or a borrowing of that time when Jesus comes into the present of Jesus' earthly ministry. Those people are experiencing something of what we will all experience when Jesus returns. Because Donna's back and neck are not going to bother anymore. Turning bare is going to be able to leap with joy like he used to. Okay? Whatever it might be in your mind, the person who you know who suffers, they will suffer no more when Jesus returns. And we saw glimpses of that in the reading from Revelation 21. There's going to be no more mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. Because redemption has come in its fullness in Jesus Christ. That what we read in Isaiah 35, that sort of year, that time of jubilee when, when recompense comes, but the flip side of that is that the blind see and the leap lame and all of that, boom, comes when Jesus returns. And while Jesus was physically present on earth and while his disciples were physically present on earth, we see that they were bringing that then so that people could see that the kingdom was real and entrust their hearts to Jesus to remove their guilt and condemnation. We see more clearly in Matthew's account of this when he says um, about these specific healings in Capernaum that uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes from Isaiah 53, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So all of this is tied in to the atonement of Jesus Christ. They're just experiencing it before you and I do. That's all. But it's tied in to what Jesus does upon the cross. The miracles are rooted in the atonement. Most of the healings will actually await the resurrection. They will not precede the resurrection. And we see this reflected in in what we find in James chapter 5. In James 5, he says, if you're afflicted and you need healing, he doesn't say, go find an apostle and he'll lay hands on you and you'll be healed. What he does say, he says, go, call the elders... Let them anoint you with oil, lay hands on you and pray. But in doing so, he's pointing to the resurrection, not to a miracle. That the Lord will raise you up. He might raise you up off that sickbed, but ultimately he will raise you up in the resurrection. Let God be free to decide which of those two he wants to do. We should also, I believe, understand that some miracles here were given to promote the service of men to both God and man. Now we go back to sort of the beginning of the story. The mother-in-law, when the fever left her, she began to serve them. Meaning Jesus, Simon, Andrew, Jacob, John, and whoever else happened to be there. It's odd because she deacons them. That's 
That's the word we get deacons from. Waiting on tables. And so she deacons them. Now, let's pause for a second. Because as I read this, I'm, and, and this points to the miraculous nature of what happened here. Okay? The fever leaves her, and she is almost instantaneously working on dinner. Right? A couple years ago, my whole family had strep fever, uh, strep throat, rather. And I was the first to get it. I, I brought the fever into the house. Um, I probably did. And I alluded to that a little bit last week when I mentioned um, Jeanette's death, because that was the week I had strep. So I visited her in the hospital, got home, and like that next day, it was just getting worse and worse, canceled the session meeting and so forth. Anyway, I remember the moment when my fever broke, because it, it like spiked and then collapsed, and I was just shaking and clammy, and all I wanted, I thought I was going to die. All I could do, I basically almost crawled into bed to rest for a while. Thinking about deaconing my family was not on the agenda at that moment. This was not the natural, normal breaking of a fever, but of a miraculous delivery from this illness that had put her on her back and in bed. And she is so thankful that what she thinks to do is to serve this Jesus who has healed her. Now, we don't know that about all the rest of the, many, of the city that showed up on the doorstep, what they did with this, but we do have the example of this one woman who she then began to serve him. Note, it's still the Sabbath because the people haven't shown up at the doorstep yet looking for a miracle. She's apparently ignoring, um, she's apparently preparing dinner for them, and she shouldn't be in some sense. But we see that Jesus is not worried about all of that. He's not worried about her observing the day of rest because she's serving him. She has been loved by God, and so she grows in love for God, as well as growing in love for His people, and begins to serve them according to her own capacity and ability. And I think that's a good pattern for us to keep in mind. Have we been loved by God? If we have been loved by God, and... If you believe in Christ, you have been loved by God. He has borne your sin upon the cross. That is the ultimate expression of love. Being, having been loved by Christ, we should be growing in love for Christ and the other people that have been loved by Christ. And in keeping with our abilities, or in some cases our limitations, Okay? Some of you struggle to serve, you want to serve, but you have limitations. Okay? I'm, not to, I'm not putting a guilt trip on people with limitations. If you hear that, that's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear that. But according to abilities, 
beginning to serve because you've been served by the King of Kings. You've been made more whole than you were by the Lord of Lords, by the great physician. His response to your prayers and distress is often to empower you to serve. If I can be honest for a moment, I've hated the last couple of years. I have found the last couple of years to be incredibly distressing to me. Okay? There's been hardship in uh, family stuff, um, church stuff. You know, there was like, it seemed like every, every other person was dying for a while. Um, things like that. There was, a lot of, there was a lot of discouragement that I was experiencing. And I know a lot of you were experiencing your own discouragement as well, your own loss, your own mourning. Okay. I was having a hard time. And his response to my prayers was to make me stand and be here and try to love you and speak the truth to you. Uh, despite the fact that I just wanted to go into a hole and hide for a while. Okay? Don't get called. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty or anything. Because what I want you to hear is, he makes a stand. That's what matters. It's not how strong you are, but what matters is how strong he is. But you only experience that strength if you cry out to him. Help me. Make me to stand. And he's faithful. And so we see that Jesus brings the kingdom in response to his people's prayers. So Jesus, to sum all of this up and kind of tie it all together, uh, Jesus shows us compassion so that we can serve in the kingdom. We can, we can sometimes call people like Ann Sullivan miracle workers because they do the unlikely, the improbable, but they're not doing the impossible. But Jesus worked true miracles. He did the impossible. He, from our perspective anyway, he healed diseases without medicine, but simply by the touch of his hand or the words of his mouth. He exercised authority over demons. He demonstrated the power of God's kingdom that he had earlier been proclaiming and that he would proclaim again. Most important for us is that this reveals the compassion of Jesus towards us when we suffer. There is a call here to seek this same Jesus when we are sick or afflicted. We don't go to a house in Capernaum, but we go to the throne of grace in prayer, and we find that He will, as the Scriptures declare, provide mercy and grace according to our need. So are you suffering? Go to Him. Have you received compassion? Serve Him and praise Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You 
that you do not close your ears to the cries of your people when they suffer. But that we see again and again in the Scriptures that you respond and you send someone to deliver. And the most important person you sent to deliver was Jesus. The greatest that you sent to deliver was Jesus because He was your own Son. Not just to heal, but also to save from sin. Help us to see his, the enormity of His compassion so that we are drawn to Him when we suffer. That we know that He is one who binds up the brokenhearted. He is one who um, does not put out the smoldering wick or break the bruised reed. He is one who offers compassion to the broken. And help us to talk about that Jesus to the people we know who are broken. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.